Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you're already at work in this place this morning. Thank you for the way that you're working in different people's lives, and I pray that you would continue your work. Father, make us more and more aware of your presence. Father, I pray from what I share um, that actually it would help us to connect to your word and hear you speaking to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I begin, um, I just want to say that last song that we were just singing, um, You're a Good, Good Father. It's who you are. It's who I am. I was just loving the, some of you will know some of my story, but like probably in coming to be your vicar, you get to hear about the degrees I've done. And, um, but I'm more complicated than that. I'm also the son of a bipolar drug addict. Do you see what I mean? Like, and what's, what's beautiful is the way that God has taken hold of my life. And if in any way you feel like you don't, you're not good enough or anything like that, just know that that's not true. Um, that actually God wants to meet us wherever you are, with whatever failings you have, with whatever, whatever that would be, and, and to refresh you in the fact that you are his child, that you are in his love, and that, um, that you are secure in that place. Okay? I just want to say that up front. Sorry, I was just, the song was making me. But anyways, um, that's, that's, just, that's for free. Okay, all right, moving on. <laughs> this morning, we want to get into thinking about... I want to take you into thinking about lament. It'll make more sense as we go on. But let me start by saying, uh, last Sunday evening, we had a prayer meeting here. And it was fantastic. We had like, I think there was 49 people that came out to pray. And really great evening. But at the beginning of it, I was supposed to open the evening with some sort of little Bible thought. And I had three different options in mind. And the one that felt right to do, that I went with, was the, the story from um, 1 Kings chapter 6. And it's a, fan, it's a great one where Elisha and his servant are, are in Dothan and the Elisha goes out in the morning kind of, you know, to get the Dothan daily um, and um, goes out in the morning and basically realizes that, there, that there's an army that's encamped around them. And so basically that army has come to get them. And the servant's terrified and he goes back into the house and he tells Elisha, and Elisha says, open his eyes that he may see. Like he's, it's like a prayer. And then all of a sudden, the servant can see encamped around the army, the armies of God, right? And, and so I used this to open the prayer meeting, but I felt really uncomfortable about using it. And the reason I felt uncomfortable was because I knew there were people, I, could, I knew people and their situations that were in the room that had been praying for things for a long time and haven't seen anything change. So how dare I challenge them to hope when they've been trying to hope for a long time, right? So I felt really uncomfortable about that. And there's this tension that we have as Christians between we, we honor God with faith and hope, and we should, and, and, and so the faith of a mustard seed can move mountains, right? So tension between that and persevering in prayer. You only need to, need to persevere in prayer if it hasn't been answered, right? And so what this touches on to me is how I think churches often have what I would call sort of a thin theology of suffering. And I want to help us go a little bit deeper this morning. Um, again, I'm taking us into this theme of lament. It's a theme that I think is often abandoned. It's one that probably many of us haven't even heard referred to in church. 
which is a whole other question as to why that would, would be. And when lament ever does come up, the conclusion that people put on it is just that is, is and you've possibly heard this before, is just that we should be comfortable shouting our prayers at God. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like the right conclusion. Like, how does that sit with passages like Ecclesiastes 5, where it says, in verses 1 and 2 there, it says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not do, know they do wrong. Check this out. It says, verse 2, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Like you can hear in that passage, the absolute reverence. And so how does a reverence for God fit with shouting our prayers at God? You see, I don't think we're ever meant to forget the created order. We are not the creator. And I think lament is more complicated than that. I like how, and hopefully this will start kind of a window into what I, how I think we're supposed to understand lament. Um, Walter Brueggemann describes it as, he refers to it as God's infidelity. We, we lament at times when God does not come through or seem to come through on what he promised, or when God acts in ways that to us are inconsistent with what we believe God should act like. Lament doesn't allow for simple answers. Lament is a place of petition, confusion, where we cry out to God because it's the best expression of what we feel. And lament often comes up in Scripture. Some examples would be the book of Job, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Lamentations. Come on, lament is right in the title, right? Uh, you know, in Psalms, I ch- check this out. For example, Lamentations. I just learned this this week, found it interesting. Um, Lamentations is five chapters long, not a very long book. It is incredibly depressing, okay? So, just saying. Um, the, uh, at the, the story at the time is that the people of Israel have been taken off into exile, Jerusalem has been destroyed, and you have five chapters where it's just chaos and confusion and anger and really hard chapters, okay? And in the, what I learned this week that I found really interesting about that is that there's an order to lamentations that you wouldn't realize unless you read Hebrew, so basically what, what you've got with Lamentations is chapter 1 has 22 verses because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse starts with another letter. Chapter 2 has 22 verses. Chapter 4 has 22 verses. Chapter 3 has 66 verses, but that's because there's three for each letter. Okay? And so there's, among this chaos, the chaos that's being described in Lamentations and the pain, there's actually an order at the same time. But even still, Lamentations ends with this paradox of proclaiming that God is king of the world, but with Israel feeling like God has left them alone. It ends with no neat and tidy conclusion. And so, when we look at lament, it connects with that. It's untidy. It's painful. And in the Psalms, lament features as really significantly. 
Eugene Peterson said that 70% of the Psalms are lament. Now, that's, there's different ways of counting it and what counts as a lament and that sort of thing, but it features really significantly in the Psalms. And there's even some moments with Jesus where you look at what's happening, and if you understand lament, it gives you another layer to understanding what's, what's going on. So, for example, when Jesus was mourning and Jesus wept, when he was mourning with Lazarus, the sisters of Lazarus, and he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, if you understand lament, it makes more sense, some of that. Or as well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's crying out before God, saying, you know, if you can take this cup from me. Or on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Makes more sense when we understand lament. And these psalms were meant to be part of the worship of the people of God. Again, I find it funny that we don't use lament. Our songs aren't like that, right? And so you have loads of these psalms that are painful, and actually they were sung by the people of God. And as part of corporate worship, the, these, these psalms of lament fit into kind of that there were times as a people where we would mourn with those who mourn. And there's other times, of course, where we rejoice with those who rejoice. And of course, now that we're in a time of Lent, it connects in, in this theme of worship in the wilderness. It connects with being in a time of mourning with those who mourn. Um, just as well, a, a thing I want to mention, um, Eugene Peterson, when he was writing on lament, I found this interesting. He said that, that he sees the increasing levels of people struggling with depression as being connected to the fact that we have difficulty facing into the reality of what we experience. That that seems to be, to him, a modern problem. Now, Baron, and, that, and lament can help with that. Now, bear in mind, what he says, Eugene Peterson says, is once someone is struggling with depression, the answer isn't just that they learn to be honest with God. Because then the, then the answer, that, the solution, if you will, needs to come before the problem has developed. Does that make sense? And so being able to be honest and, and plumb the depths and, and, be, and connect with really hard things actually is what we need to do to have the fullness of such a, such a thing that to Eugene Peterson would mean that we don't fall into depression. Um, but once we do, it's harder to get out. Now, so what I want to do with you this morning, just to kind of just briefly... So I want to take you briefly into Psalm 44. We just heard it, heard it read. It's a great example of lament, and I hope you'll see some things in it that we might connect with. But check this out. First of all, Psalm 44. In verses 1 through 8, you've got them remembering what God's done, right? Like if I read verse 1. We've heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. So verses 1 through 8, you get this remembering of what God's done over the years. And then in verses 9 through 16, you get that Israel is forsaken by God. God's not helping them. It's the difficulty of their current situation. Here we find Israel in national crisis. People expected God to show up and help, but he didn't. They've put their trust in God, and yet... What we find is phrases like, here, like in verse 9, you have rejected us and humbled us. Verse 10, you've made us retreat before the enemy. Verse 11, you gave us up to be devoured like sheep. Verse 12, you sold your people for a pittance. 
Verse 13, you've made us a reproach to our neighbors. Verse 14, you've made us a byword among the nations. You notice something in that? If you were to underline the word you, it comes up again and again. In verses 1 through 8, God is the one who's blessed them. In verses 9 through 16, God is the one who's turned on them. The whole passage so far is very much focused on what God has done. And remembering what God's done in the past must make it, both it's encouraging, but also when you're in the middle of pain can make it incredibly difficult as well. Like some of us have amazing stories of things that God has done in the past. They fill us with faith when belief met life in a tangible way. For this psalm, they've heard stories of people like Gideon, Samson, Jonathan, David. Times when a boy could fell Goliath with a stone, right? They've had a winning hand every time, clearly because God was with them, but now it's all stopped. Now realize for them, this means that they're on the run. In the time this was written, it would be equal to many deaths and an uncertain future. It wasn't a world for the weak. And all this is made harder because they remember what God can do. Um, let, me, let me just share a personal thing that might help us connect with some of this a little bit. Um, this is basically when I was kind of, um, when I moved to Bemidji, Minnesota, northern Minnesota, before that I had seen God work in some powerful ways. And when I got to Bemidji, I felt like, I heard these stats about how the university there had a really small percentage of people attending churches. And so I felt like God really stirred that in me in such a way that I felt like I should do something about this, right? And, and I started kind of pushing doors, and it got really exciting really quick. So I had a bunch of friends that all of a sudden, they were, they were up for it. They were going to help me. And... Um, the University of Bemidji had the tallest building in Bemidji, okay? And on the top floor, it was kind of like a comfortable sitting area. And so I asked the University of Bemidji if they would let us use that floor, and they, they let us use it once a week without charge. Boom, right? I mean, everything's working. And we held this kind of launch event for what we were doing, and loads of people came. And just super exciting stuff. And I thought, man, God is in this. And then it became a Bible study for eight people. Right? Now, now by the way, I know this, I, I poured myself into those eight people that year. I really did, right? I'm sure it was really good for those eight people. But I was so passionate and so, and I felt like God was in it. Like God was going to reach the people of the University of Bemidji campus and it didn't happen. And you go, well, God, don't you care about those people? Why wouldn't you do that? I remember it almost being a thing that I couldn't acknowledge in myself. Because it was painful. Like, God, I followed your call and nothing, and it didn't happen. Why would you do that? And that connects with what's happening here in Psalm 44. They don't understand there, there's significant confusion. And this is all made clear, for example, in verses 17 to 22. The argument here is that they've been faithful to God. 
Like verse 17, though we had not forgotten you. 18, our hearts had not turned back. Verses 20 and 21 says, God, if we had worshipped other gods, you'd know. They're confused. Now notice something here. It's easier to have a simplistic theology. Right? Like, check this out. Like, this, this follows logically, although it's not reality. For example, here's an example. If God's all-powerful, and he's a good God that loves us, then surely everything should be perfect. Right? Logically, it makes sense. Doesn't really work out. And if God's all-knowing and all-powerful, then everything should fit his plan. And so we build a nice box for God, and we expect him to stay in it. Yikes. And, and so notice something here. I think, again, a theology of suffering as Christians, sometimes we tend toward things that are too simple, that don't represent the complexity we find in Scripture. I am... Um, when I was at Oak Hills Christian College, um, that's where I did my undergraduate, finished my undergraduate degree. No relation to the Oak Hills over here, but just for confusion, you know. Um, but the, uh, when I was at Oak Hills, the, what I found is I could ask really difficult questions. And what would happen is that there was basically 12 answers, right? It would all boil down to 12 answers. And what I found real quickly is that I had questions that basically nobody could address, that were beyond anyone's, you know. And then it was really significant for me um, when I went to Regent College to do my master's degree where, where Joe and I met. And, and, I, and I, I was just curious. I threw up some of the same questions, see what would happen. And all of a sudden there was, among the professors there, there was a depth of thinking that went way beyond 12, 12 statements in a, doc, you know, in a doctrinal statement. You get, you get what I'm saying? Went way beyond that. And it made me realize, the, again, the depth of Scripture quite often is beyond the depth that, that we realize or that we have come to, to terms with. And so here they're confused. And then we get a beautiful honesty in verses 23 to 25. I mean, it's also hard. It's kind of like, wow, psalmist, what do you really think? Um, but check this out, verse 23. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and our and oppression? We're brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Essentially, God, we haven't done anything wrong, so why are we suffering and you're sleeping? Brueggemann comments from this. He says, churches should be the most honest place in town. And the psalm finishes with this little ray of hope where the psalmist is essentially holding on to what they know. And so we read verse 26. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Lament psalms often finish on a high note, reminding us of what we know among our confusion. Now here's the thing. What I'm sharing with you today, I definitely, first of all, I want to say I wanted to sit alongside the other things we've been looking at, right? So we've been in Romans 8. We've been exploring other things that connect to this. 
But there's going to be times where, where we pray and the answer doesn't come and we don't understand why. And in those times, we need to be able to trust God. We need to be able to draw to him. I want to close with a with an example of modern lament. Um, this was this was written uh, by a guy named Daniel McConchie, who in he wrote it in two thousand eight. In two thousand seven, he was he was there was a hit and run accident, and he was paralyzed from the neck down. And he writes this. And you'll hear resonance with some of the psalms from this. But he's writing this about his current his personal situation. O Lord, my God, why do you wait to show up? I cried out to you when trouble struck. I asked for your restoration. I know that you heard me. I know that you answered. Yet nothing, nothing of meaning happens again today. Infantismal changes dog my days. I am hounded by the prayers of the fickle, looking to me to prove their faith. When will the clouds break? When will the night cease? When will the tunnel end? When will you smile again? What a two-edged sword your voice is. You speak and then wait. You give hope and then vanish into mist. Have you forgotten me? Have more important things arrested your attention? Hope turns black. This evil I have seen. Nightly my dreams show me restored and in the morning I am broken again. Cursed to relive the horror of suffering's first day. How long, how long must I wait here in the middle? Between healing and hell, between heaven and horror. I am unable to move, unable to see, lost in eternal confusion. There's nothing I can do. In no way can I help. I sit in the ruins and wait and take comfort in those who lie in the ashes with me. And catch his little the bit of hope at the end. He says this, But one day by his promise, I will stand, restored as his message of hope is fulfilled. The Lord will turn this horror into a fading dream, and I will honor his name forever. Friends, we need an understanding of suffering that represents the fullness of Scripture. That means that we will honor God regardless of what we face, that we will hold on to hope because sometimes God's kingdom breaks through. And yet when the answer doesn't come, we will continue to trust and live for him. You might have things that you're hiding from, things in your own thinking that you need to bring to God. For me, I remember a really powerful thing for me was realizing there was times where I was bitter about my calling. Like there was times where I felt like, God, I know what you want me to do, but it's so painful and so hard. I'm actually kind of angry with you because of it. And I felt like I couldn't say that to God. It was actually a breakthrough personally to go to do some of what we're finding here and to be honest with God, to bring everything before him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your overall plan that we look forward to. Father, often like the psalmist, we're in a place of confusion. Often we don't understand and and we want to, even in those times, be in a place of trust, faithfulness. Father, help us when we've 
wanted to take your place. Help our hearts to revere you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.